You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Hey everybody, it's Monday night, time for American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. How's everybody doing? We are back. Uh, my guest tonight is uh, an old college acquaintance of mine, uh, joining us via Skype all the way from Seattle, Mr. Matt Muth. How you doing, man? Doing great, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. Um, I always start these interviews off with the exact same question, and that question is, where were you born? Uh, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, what was your childhood like? Did you grow up in Ann Arbor or? I did, yeah. I grew up in Ann Arbor. Um, Dad was a lawyer. Mom basically stayed at home to raise me and my brother. And uh, grew up in Lawton. Shout out to the Lawton crew, Slauson, uh, Pioneer, and then onwards. Okay. What kind of a lawyer was your dad? Uh, he was a medical malpractice lawyer. Medical malpractice. Okay. And, and are you the uh, older brother or younger brother? I'm the older brother. Okay, so you got one younger brother. Um, what uh, what kind of a student were you? Uh, I was I was smart but bored. I think is a good way to describe it for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, I was always like a voracious reader. I was reading constantly when I was a kid, um, and that continued sort of all the way through uh, middle school, high school, and on and on and on. But at some point, like I just stopped becoming engaged by the things that were happening in the classroom. And I decided that uh, there were other more interesting diversions that would better serve me. What were, uh, what were those uh, other diversions? Uh, They were smoking weed. There was a lot of that. (laughs) Um, So that was, that was certainly up there as a diversion. Um, But, you know, just kind of like parties, uh, some drinking, um, I was in I was in theater guild. I was on the poetry slam team. I played lacrosse. I had this very weird cross section of things uh, that I was interested in and, and doing um, that only seemed weird looking back on it. Okay, uh, what were they? Can you remember some of them? Like, what were the the things you were interested in doing? Like, for I assume you mean like for a career. Uh, as far as a career was concerned, I really thought I was going to be an actor. Really? Um, and I think that, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that comes like my, I'm Sicilian. Uh, and so I think part of that is just a genetic need for attention, like to be the center of attention at all points in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, that That certainly existed. Um, I was very into the theater stuff. We did all the productions aside from the musicals. Uh, because my singing voice was so bad, the they actually told me that I was throwing the other fifty nine people in the cast off. <laughs> so they told me just mouth words. Um, and I actually, when I graduated from high school, I auditioned for a bunch of theater conservatory programs, um, and did not actually end up getting into any of them. Um, but I always, I think, had the idea that I wanted to do something creative, right? Whether that was poetry, whether it was acting, whether it was 
I guess those were the two broad ideas I had at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's take a step back here for a bit because, like you said, you read a lot as a kid. Like, when, what did you read? Like, do you remember what you were you were into reading? Uh, when I was in elementary school, I was really really into Calvin and Hobbes. Right, I had mm-hmm. like all the collections. Um, you know, something under the bed is drooling. Yukon Ho, uh, all that all that stuff, and. Eventually, actually, my parents took them away from me uh, because I was emulating Calvin. Uh, to a, they found that uncomfortable. I think the last straw, there was one strip that I remember very particularly where Calvin is like pounding nails into a coffee table. And then, you know, his mom comes in and she's like, why are you doing that? What's going on? And he's like, I don't know. Right. Like it never actually occurred to him. Reason. And so I was like, OK that's what I'm going to do. And I actually did it. I started pounding nails into the coffee table. And then my mom came in and she was like, why are you doing that? And I'm very proud of myself at that point. I was like, I don't know. Right. Like I'm art or life imitating art here. Right. And then she's like, no, tell me why you're doing it. And I was like, well, Calvin did it. And she was like, all right, that's it. That's the last (laughs) one. She she found out the cause and she, and she got rid of the cause and, and that was her duty as a parent there. So that problem was solved, huh? Yeah, I think for the safety of all the furniture, she was like, "We need to, we need to get these ideas out of his head." Right. Um, so you were you were into uh, Calvin and Hobbes as a kid. Um, when did you first start? Because you said like you wanted to be an actor, but then you said poet was kind of your um, your your second uh, interest. Like, when did you start becoming interested in writing your own material and 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 all that kind of stuff? Um, I mean, I had always sort of been dicking around with writing in ways that were serious and unserious. Uh, I think the the first poem I ever wrote was uh, about my middle school soccer coach who got killed in a car crash. Uh, It was very sad at the time. Um, And it was basically, you know, it, it it was what you would expect from like a seventh grader trying to write a poem, right? It was like centered down the page. And it used that refrain from Slaughterhouse Five, like, so it goes over and over again. Mm. Um, And that was sort of like the first thing I can remember composing, per se. Um, But I also used to play uh, like Warhammer. You you know what this is? Like the tabletop uh, game where you buy like the little pewter figures and then you got to spray them up and like paint them. And then you buy the army book. It's it's just a huge money thing. But, like, you put them all on the table, and then you roll dice, and they, like, pretend fight. Um, I used to play that with some of my friends, and we would, like, create these elaborate, uh, what what we would now call fan fictions about sort of the Warhammer universe with all of our own um, specific factions and that kind of thing. Shout out to Blair. I killed your white dwarf son. It's dead. <laughs> uh well, that, that's okay. So that's really interesting. So you started around middle school then, it sounds like, and you kind of just, it sounds like you weren't really, um, you know, you were interested in it, but it wasn't, you know, a super passion of yours, uh, at least not at first. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's accurate. Um, and then I wound up taking a slam poetry class in high school uh, with a dude named Jeff Cass, who, you know, if you're from Ann Arbor, you're probably familiar with Jeff Cass. Um, And that really sort of, I'm not sure what it was at the time, you know, you're going through those weird sort of puberty um, kind of teenage years and you got a lot of angst and you got a lot of feelings and you just 
feel all those feelings deeply and passionately at all times. Right. And you're certain and that you're certain that you're the only person who's ever felt those feelings as well. Up until yeah. Yeah. Point. You have the biggest feelings out of yeah. all the feelings. That I've ever <laughs> um, but that class sort of gave me a lever to <clears throat> begin formulating a, an, a valve of, I guess just expression, right? At that time, it really just was expression. And to a large degree, that's all Poetry Slam is, is just expressing a feeling, right? And for high school, that was a very useful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must have been quite the uh, the outlet for, for both that and acting must have, uh, you know, that, that must have been a really good time to get into that. You must have been, uh, you, know, you know, there's no wonder that that's what you wanted to go into and it, that ended up being uh, acting or poetry. Um but uh, so you you went to Eastern uh, for your at first, right? Is that that's where you went to college? Uh, that's the first college that you went to, or is there more to it before uh, between when you graduated and when when you got to Eastern? Uh, my first college, I actually went to Kalamazoo College, okay, um, small school on the west side of the state. Um, and basically, I kind of i i drank myself out, right? Is the <laughs> uncharitable way to put it. Uh-huh. Um, but I was struggling a lot with sort of like depression and uh, some substance abuse and these kind of things combined in an environment where there's like, I think there's 900 kids on campus at any given time. So it's like, it's very small. It was about half the size, less than half the size of my high school. And so all of that was a very difficult transition for me and I didn't fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, So I left there, I got a job as a bus boy for, a year or two years um, before I got myself together enough to get into Washington to get my GPA up a little bit, at which point I transferred to Eastern. Okay. And I should say, as I mentioned before, Eastern is where I uh, I became acquainted with you. We had a couple of uh, classes together, poetry classes actually, and, and fiction writing classes. Um, and I have to say, and this is why I asked you on the show, because I mean, this is, I mean, this is 10 years ago now. Uh, that 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 this happened that we were both at Eastern and um, you mentioned that you were a smart but bored student and I remember you in those classes and you were always like the guy who would be late with his assignments and things and I remember this the the one memory I have that's most vivid of you uh, as uh, is we were in Tracy Morris's uh, poetry class and it was we had a poem due that day and I remember your turn came around. We were going around the classroom circle and everybody was reciting their poem. And, uh, you got, we got to you and you were like, you stood up and you're like, this is the shoe poem. And you took off your shoe, pounded it on the, on the desk and then put the shoe back on and said, the poem is over. And that was it. But the thing is, man, is because I remember you were, you, you came off as kind of, as you know, kind of a slacker but at the same time i remember reading a short story from you from you in a, a uh, uh i can never pronounce the guy's name is stefan kaisby i'll go with that pronunciation he's by yeah, right. uh and you wrote a short story it was like a satire on president truman um deciding to drop the atomic bomb on uh uh hiroshima or hiroshima and the it was like the writing. It was the first time in any of those classes where I was I read something and I was like, this feels professional. And so I was like, no wonder he doesn't. He's not like paying attention. He doesn't fucking have to. You know, like he's already good enough that he doesn't need to worry about it. So I, 
from then on, because dude, like I still remember lines from that. I remember his last, his, he'd like changed his name to Harry Truman. His real name was something Doppelbach. And the last thing, <laughs> the last thing he does is he calls, he picks up the phone because he takes a shot of sake and he's like, man, the people that drink this shit, well, they'll never surrender. And he picks up the phone and he's like, he's like, yeah, let's make an omelet. And then that's the end of the story. So that, I mean, here I am 10 years. You probably don't even remember that story, but I'm sitting here res- telling you lines from it. So that real, I really remembered that, and and I was like, God damn it, like because I, I wanted to be a writer at the time too, and, and that was one of those things. I'm like, God damn it, this guy is here's here's a guy that actually knows what he's doing, you know. So um, so now that I've I've spewed uh, all that at you, I just I mean, could, do you have any memories of Eastern like that? Do you have any any you know what's what are you, what's your take on Eastern from your time there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I I loved it. It was actually I was in the right place at that point in my life where I realized sort of like, you know, I didn't want to be working um, as a busboy or I didn't want to have like some menial job, but I actually wanted to learn stuff from people who were willing to teach it to me. And that may not have come through constantly because again, you know, I'm not saying I had all of my cats in the same bag at that point in time. Um, But it it was great. I remember Tracy's class very fondly. Um, I remember uh, Jonathan Kung was in that class. Um, He's a very talented guy. And Laura, I I can never remember Laura's last name. Um, But you remember a little girl, blonde hair, glasses, very sort of like quiet and unassuming. Um, But she was was incredibly talented. Um, So yeah, I remember Tracy's class, uh, Stefan's class. Um, I took a lot of great classes with uh, Natasha Kovacevic. Um, Christine Hume's experimental writing class was incredible. Um, and I've actually run into Tracy, uh, twice since leaving Ipsy. Um, and both times she has been like cordial, but also with that sort of, uh, that, that guarded, the guarded person, the guarded nature that was like, I know you were a fuck boy in my class. And I haven't forgotten. <laughs> Well, when, where did it's you like, see her? Like, where, where, when was that? Um, I ran into her when they had the AWP conference in Seattle. Uh, when was that? 2013, maybe, or something like that. I saw her at that, and I talked with her, and it was cool. And then I saw her maybe a year ago or two years ago at Open Books, which is a bookstore here. And she did a reading with um, Taihimba Jess, who won the uh, Pulitzer for Olio. Um, and so I got to talk to her a little bit there. Um, and both times she was like, you know, she was, she was cordial, but also like, we're not, we're not going to have a relationship. You burn those bridges, son. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well, well, and that, that actually makes it really interesting because you became a professor. I mean, how, you know, we'll, we'll get into that more because we're not quite to that part in the story, but I mean, that's really interesting that you ran into her and, and, you know, she remembered you, uh, and you know, in that way. Uh, but, uh, so after you, you were done at Eastern, did, I don't, I mean, did you get your bachelor's there or was, uh, how many, how long were you at Eastern for? I think I was there for two years, two and a half years, maybe. And I did get my bachelor of science in like language, linguistics and writing, whatever that, um, major was. I don't think they're offering quite the same thing anymore. Okay. But then you ended up out at, in Washington. Um, and how, how did that happen? Uh, well, I had the girl I was dating at the time, um, after graduation, got an internship in Washington, D.C., somewhere with the government. I forget what it was, something involving 
uh, the law or the Justice Department. And she asked me if I wanted to move out there with her. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. For, you know, I'll go for the summer. Absolutely. Um, and I ended up liking it there so much that I stayed. And she uh, left, went back to uh, University of Minnesota Law School after that. But I stayed in D.C., uh, lived there for two and a half years or so, worked in Congress for a little bit, uh, worked at a chocolatier. And then um, just one day I figured, I, I again, I don't want to be sort of at a chocolatier for uh, the rest of my life, I decided to apply to MFA programs, and I uh, got into the University of Washington. So, packed everything up, drove from D.C. to Seattle. Wow, you, you made that drive, huh? That must have been a real life-changing experience to see the country like that. You know, you feel like it will be, um, but I think I might have done it wrong in that I kind of like, I pushed through very hard. So, I was on the road for like 12, 14-hour days. Um, and at a certain point, you're just like, you're, you're comatose. You can't look at another rolling field and feel any kind of. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's, I have to say, I took the bus out to LA two years ago for my birthday and I'm going back to LA this week for my birthday and I'm flying this time. So it was, that's the thing. It's, <laughs> I, I was expecting it to be majestic and, you know, I mean, parts of it were like the first time you see the mountains is pretty cool. But as soon as you get used to it, you're just like, okay, I, now I just want to be where I'm supposed to be. I'm, I'm ready for this trip to be finished. Um, so uh, t tell us about uh, your time at uh, the University of Washington then. Uh, I was a student at the University of Washington in the Master's of Fine Arts program. Um, I got my degree in poetry, basically. Uh, so I arrived in Seattle, um, I think in August, maybe like early August or something like that. And it was just like, it's such a bizarre culture shock going from like a major sort of East Coast type A, aggressive, aggressive um, metropolitan center out to a West Coast passive aggressive type B place. And I struggled with that for for years. Um, in some ways, I still do. Uh, but it was like I remember walking around the first two weeks I was here, like with my fists balled up because I wanted to punch everybody I saw <laughs> be because I didn't understand how anyone could live the lives that they were living. It was like literally foreign to me. Some guy would be riding a unicycle down the street in a kilt at like two, two in the afternoon on a Tuesday. <laughs> and I could not comprehend that man's life. Like it was literally, it, it made me angry because I couldn't wrap my head around it. It's like, how dare you be so free? How dare you be so comfortable with yourself or whatever it takes, right? You know, to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like, that. like you, you get a job, sir. These are working out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so you're at uh, University of Washington. You got your uh, uh, MFA there. Um, and uh, when, how did you start teaching then? Like, how did you? Because I'm getting back to you said you know the type of student you were, and just it seems like you were you you wouldn't have been a candidate for a, for a teacher, right? You know, I mean, you especially up until that point in your life. You know, I, when did you first even think that you might even want to do that? Um. It was because I, I, I was on scholarship here. Um, so part of that is that you are, you teach, right? you you act as a TA, uh. um, for like intro to poetry classes or composition classes. And so that was sort of my first exposure to it. Um, and I was awful. I was a bad teacher at that time. Um, mainly because, well, 
for several reasons, but one of the reasons was because like I hadn't spent enough time. Um, I, I was frustrated with the learning process that I was going through myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it was difficult for me to come into the MFA program from a place where I'd been working for two and a half years um, outside of academia and then to be dropped in with people who were coming like right out of their undergrads who had had very intense discipline sort of emphasis on literature and writing. And they had this incredible vocabulary that they would apply to everything in the workshop. And I didn't know what the hell was going on. Um, And so because I was confused in that part, I became a confused teacher or I was a bad teacher. I wasn't able to direct students. Um, so I, I basically, I graduated, um, I got a job working at a writing center at the university of Washington, mostly with international kids, helping them out with their academic essays. And that was much easier because all you're dealing with is like structure Right. at that point. This is an int- this is a thesis. This is a main claim. This is why it needs to do this and so on and so forth. And so that sort of helped me transition, um, to a place where I was comfortable with the subject material as well as with my understanding of the subject material. Um, and from there I wound up, I got a, just sort of a, a show up in assist class type deal at DigiPen for a screenwriting class uh, that turned into one or two sections of storytelling or screenwriting, I forget which, and then that just sort of expanded and expanded until, you know, here I am today. And you're an English professor now, right? That's what you teach? Yes, I teach uh, composition, storytelling, screenwriting, uh, intro and advanced fiction workshops, um, mythology. I think that's about it. And so you found your your niche, though. It sounds like you found your stride. You're no longer a confused teacher. Yes, I am no longer a confused teacher. Um, and I think part of the part of the, the great part about teaching is that I feel like I have had some great teachers in my own life. And like I know it sounds corny, but like I would not even be half the functional human that I am currently without people like Tracy Morris, like showing me, like teaching me, despite my best intentions to not learn. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I still, they still put that work in. They still gave me things that are incredibly valuable. Um, like Heather McHugh and, and Walter Brown, uh, all these people who have been in my life that really helped me to be even just as functional as I am right now. Um, and so it, it, it feels good to sort of be in that tradition that like I could be that person for, uh, one of these kids who is like confused, they're angry, they don't know what's going on. They're drunk all the time, whatever that I can be someone who can just put a little bit of knowledge or grounding or, or to help them get their feet under them in some way. Um, and that 10 or 15 years down the road, they'll be like, they'll think it, they'll think, thank you, Mr. Muth for that thing that you did. And I was going to say, because it must be interesting to be in, to have that role reversal, right? And you see students that maybe remind you of yourself and you can, you can talk to them in a way that another teacher couldn't because you had, you've been in their shoes before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've definitely experienced that and it's, 
much like me, they don't listen, right? which is <laughs> right. fine. Like, <clears throat> because like, I didn't listen when I was that kid either, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, you know, but I, as a person still, I look back on the, the good advice the teachers gave me. And I was like, well, shit, I didn't listen at the time. It would have made things easier, but I know it now. Right. And that somebody actually took the time and put the effort into try to help me grow as a person uh, in that way that I can look back, that I can assimilate it even 10, 15 years down the road or something. Um, I got two kind of cliche questions for you here in regards to your uh, teaching, and then we'll move on to uh, your writing. Um, but uh, what, what do you like most about teaching and what do you not like most about teaching? Um, uh, the things that I like most, I like, I like the performative aspect of teaching, right? It is in a way like acting. You assume this very specific persona around the students, um, that you are, you're authoritative, um, that you have this extensive knowledge of the subject material, um, but that also you are, you're, it's hard to say, you're there to, it's a beautiful mix between providing exploration and authority um, in the way that your job is to kind of give them the tools they need to figure, to to do whatever they want to do. Your job is just kind of to show them how to use the tools. Okay. Um, so you say, I'm an expert in using tools. Once you know how to use the tools, like go out and, I don't know, write write the best Harry Potter fan fiction you possibly can. Right. And then, and if that's what they want to do, they go out and do it. Um, so that's the best part. The worst part, there's two bad parts. One is grading, which sucks. It's awful. It's a time sink. Every teacher hates it. Uh, and the other part is the pay, which sucks. And every teacher hates it. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, well, I mean, uh, so th- t- t- before, actually, I have one more question before we move on because I just thought of this. T- tell me about the, the the school that you teach at right now. It's, I, I'm, I hope I don't pr- mispronounce it. It's DigiPen Institute of Technology. Um, that sounds like a real yeah. specialized school. Like, what are they? What are they known for out there? Uh, it is a school for video game designers. Oh, right. So, if students want to design video games um, or be digital animators, is another very popular program. Like to make to make Pixar movies um, or to learn coding or programming or something like that. But it's basically a technical school for people who want to work in the video game industry. Okay. And you get like a very interesting section of humanity, right? Yeah, um, it's a bunch of uh, like 19 year olds, 20 year olds, et cetera. Um, who are all sort of more comfortable with the internet than they are with people. Um, the proportion of learning disabilities is much higher than it is at like a general um, institution, anxiety disorders, all that kind of stuff. And they're all like, you know, they're into anime or they're like big, big video game nerds or they're, or they're into Dungeons and Dragons. And they all sort of come in with this weird, like, um, that, like they've been shunned by the wider world in their other lives, but then they all show up together and there's this beautiful like nerd flowering where they realize like everyone else here can name 93% of the Pokemon as well. And then they just like, they open up as human beings and begin forming emotional connections. And it's, it's kind of beautiful to see. 
Do you have any particular students that you can remember that were uh, like promising or where you, you, you read something that a student wrote and go and went like, wow, this kid actually could, could do it. You know, like this kid could, could become a famous author. Um, I have, I've had kids that are very, very good writers. Um, the thing is that their creative inputs, broadly speaking, the things that they come into school with tend to be much more focused around genre fiction. Right. They're much more familiar with like high fantasy um, and sci fi and like these fan fiction communities and slash communities on the Internet and stuff like that. Um, So none of them, I think, are looking to be like Jonathan Franzen or something like that. Instead, I think they want to push their they want to push the boundaries of whatever specific genre they're really, really into. Okay, um, so we'll, we'll move on. Let's uh, now that we're talking about uh, uh, writing, uh, what have you been up to lately? I mean, because you you you've, you've published a, a couple poems in uh, various online uh, journals, um, and you've 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 done some uh, some things like that. So, what do you just tell us about what you've been up to with that? I mean, you did the slam poetry when you were a teenager and all, and kind of uh, learned about it in college and got your MFA in poetry. Um, so like after that happened, like what was the next step for you as far as the, the actual writing and what have you been up to uh, since then? Yeah. I mean, the next step is just to, to repeat, um, just write and write and write and write and incrementally try to get better. Um, recently I've been, I, I've gone back in time, um, to like the nineties. I know I requested like nineties songs, uh-huh. uh, for the intro. Um, and it's like, it, it's a place for me, at least I'm trying to shape it as a place that feels like it is full of possibility, right? You sort of, you know, everything is sort of nostalgic and you look at everything with rose tint glasses and everything like that. Um, but going back to sort of that part of my life has allowed me in a way to be to be tender towards the person that I was, right? We've talked a little bit about, you know, how I've just been, how I was, I was kind of a fuck up um, and had a lot of problems and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but returning to it has kind of forced me to be, what's the word I'm looking for here? Okay, let me, I, I will backtrack a little bit. The two sort of governing emotions um, I think I work best within our tenderness and love, right? As far as my poetic au revoir, that's where I tend to find myself more or less. Um, and I've been working on trying to intermingle those two things more and seeing what happens. Tenderness and loathing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what are you like? Are you, have you ever written a novel or anything? Is it just poetry or short stories or anything like that? Or do you consider yourself primarily a poet? Uh, I consider myself primarily a poet. Um, I have, I've tried to write short stories. Uh, they have, they've never quite, I I don't have the patience for it, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, it must be so hard to sit down and write like a, you know, 15, 20 page story that's tight, that's good, that pushes all the buttons that formally, does what it needs to do and moves the story along. Like when I read a great story by an author, I can recognize all of those things, 
but it's not something I can reproduce yet because I like, I don't know. I, I just don't have the patience. And for those of you who've written a novel out there, like I can't even, I can't even comprehend the time and effort that that took. Well, what's your writing process like? Like, do you, I know you mentioned, I, I read an interview with you, you did it two years ago with uh, primalschool.org and you mentioned that you keep a notebook that you, your brother got you in Venice and you were at the time you're trying to get better at filling it up. Um, is that typically, do you, do you just work from notes or do you sit down and you're like, okay, I have an idea and I'm going to bang this out. You know, what, what's your process? Yeah, I tend to be more of the sit down and bang something out um, kind of person. And then uh, the real good stuff happens when I come back to that thing and then refine it and refine it and refine it and refine it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm lucky, it gets down to just this, this distilled uh, thing where every word is, is as hard as a diamond in there. Um, and that's, that's a great feeling. Have you gone back and like like refined some things that you did you did in like college or high school or anything like that? I find for me that's where a lot of my best work comes from is where I pick something up that I thought was dead back you know twelve fifteen years ago and I look at it now and I'm like oh I see what I was trying to do with this and now you know I have the experience to where I I'm, I know what I, how to to get that across. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the one of the things that I do when I'm sort of stuck, when I'm not like feeling any new sort of uh, generative thing coming is I can always open up that folder. I've got hundreds of poems in there, some short stories, things that I've written a long time ago, but go back to it and be like, is there something here that I can pull out that I can tease out and push forward with like a much better understanding of, of craft and a much better control of language now? Um, and as, as you said, the answer is often yes, and you get great stuff out of that. Um, so, what uh, what's your goal ultimately with poetry? Then, do you want to do you want to be like do you want to put together a bunch of um, anthologies and have those become bestsellers? Or are you just kind of a, I'm gonna I'm just gonna be creative and see what comes of it? I think there's there's always that idea that like you want to be the big fancy poet in any given room. Um, and it's, it's, it exists within me, right? Like I would be lying if I said I did not want to be like the one poet who breaks through into the mainstream and becomes very popular and is a literary celebrity. And then I get to go to like the Met Gala and wear like a Pope hat this year or something (laughs) like that, you know? Right. And nobody questions Um, it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm just going to get one in my fucking. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Why not? Why, why wait? Right. (laughs) But, Um, but like that instinct is also counterproductive because it forces your generative work along a, a definition of success that is frankly unrealistic and distinctly unhelpful in terms of like actually exploring uh, language in the form. Okay. Well, that kind of gets into my next question here, which is I wanted to ask you about, and I guess this is not just poetry, but just literary work in general, you know, novels and, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, if you'll pardon that expression. Um, uh, what's your opinion on it? Because, I mean, you've been published in a couple of online journals, like I said before, and even, you know, doing that is is an accomplishment because, uh, you know, you 
you know, there there are so many people that want to do it, and so many hobbyists, and so many different levels of 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 what's considered good. Um, you mentioned in that interview that the, there's a big difference between somebody with an MFA and somebody without an MFA, and it's not so much that MFA is automatically good and non MFA is automatically not good, but it's more like if you have an MFA, you know what the 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 industry is looking for. You have a better idea of what they're what's going to resonate and what's going to catch somebody's eye. Whereas if you don't, then you're kind of just all you can do is just shoot blindly, sort of. Um, but so, like, what's your opinion on that? Like, what do you, you know, just just in terms of like getting published in the current state of the industry, um, what would you uh, would you have to say about that? I know that's a big question, but <laughs> it's kind of like a, a give and take, right? It's it's going to depend on what your goals are. Um, if you want like the big, if you want the big book deal from like Harper Collins or like. Knopf or something like that, like one of the big publishing houses, that is getting rarer and rarer and further and further away um, for sort of everyone, not just for poets who are um, much more sort of, or much less lucrative, I should say, than mm-hmm. short story writers or fiction writers. Um, but at the same time, there's so many good magazines out there right now. Like there's so many good venues for uh, poems and short stories, so many places that collect great stuff that doesn't necessarily fit the definition of like the Iowa review poem or something like that, or the New Yorker poem. Um, and that put these things out. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a double-edged sword, I think. Um, it sounds like it's, it's kind of like everywhere else, every other industry right now, which is there is this chance that it's technically because of the way technology is um, anybody has the shot at that huge deal and anybody can be it. But the thing is at the same time, because anybody has the shot, then you're just kind of the majority of people are going to be kind of lost in this sea of obscurity and uh, just toiling away and um, getting that huge deal is essentially just winning the lottery, you know, because of how, of the odds that you have in, in, in terms of everything working out just, just in the right way for that to happen. Um, that's the same. It's the way it is with music right now. It's the way it is with just about everything. You know, there's, there's a couple of insanely uh, well-off winners and then, every, and then just this sea of people toiling in, in obscurity. Is that – would you say that's a fair assessment? I would say, yeah, that that's a great way to put it. It's sort of the democratization of the process, um, which comes with like more people being educated in literature and poetry in general, um, as well as sort of the ability to self-publish and for organizations to publish on the internet to large audiences uh, has opened the gateway to a lot more people. Yeah, I think you're right. And it, it does push sort of like the big thing for any individual further back. I think in, um, in writing, it, it's also very dependent in some ways on what people understand to be, uh, the culturally relevant moment that you're operating in. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for example, Claudia Rankin's book, citizen, it's a great book, right? Um, it came out like 15, I think 2015, 2016 or something like that. um, sort of uh, dealing with, in many ways, black voices and, and the, the way that they've been silenced and, and, and pushed to the margins um, and, and that kind of thing. And it was an incredible book. It won the, um, the Pulitzer that year, I think. But it 
she's also been writing that same book for the last 15 years. And that year just happened to be um, the Black Lives Matter, really the Black Lives Matter movement, really right. occupying a huge place in our cultural consciousness. And because of that, sort of her continued interest got pushed into that moment um, and blew up, right, which was well-deserved. Um, but that's something that you also see. That one lady who wrote uh, the story in the New York Times recently. Oh, um, cat person, right? Cat, yeah, cat person, right. Yeah. She just got the big book deal yeah. based only on that story. And we're sort of in that moment of like, you know, the Me Too movement and the um, the weird, awkward um, sort of lines between uh, harassment and just discomfort and, and all that kind of stuff. So it sort of matters when you're writing what you're writing to. It's a, it kind of reminds me of what you just said of like a politician like Bernie Sanders who had been saying the same thing for 20, 30 years, but all of a sudden in 2016 he runs for president and he almost beats the the anointed uh, you know front runner just because of, of the message that he'd been peddling. And it's like you just said with the, the author that wrote uh, Citizen. And I would say, you know, I mean, that there are all sorts of books like that. Like I'm reading one right now called The Sellout that came out the same year uh, as Citizen. It was a 2015 as well. And uh, that's another uh, sort of like uh, – it's a novel about a black dude in, from L.A. in the ghetto who reinstates slavery. Um, and it's a comedy. And uh, I'm not done with it yet, but it's pretty good. Uh, another one, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. That won the Pulitzer last year. Um, and sure, that's, yeah. and that's another good one. Um, so, and it's it kind of, you kind of wonder like, would those have, have gotten the attention they, they got if they'd been published 10 years ago? And the answer is probably not. They, I'm sure they would have done well because those are all established names, but, um, would they have gotten the prizes for them? Probably not. So that's a, that's a good point. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, earlier, um, sort of with the democratization of the, uh, of the process, um, there's a lot of good magazines out there, uh, that, and you happen to run one. Um, you're the editor editor in chief of the Pacifica Literary Review, and I did want to ask you about the genesis of that. I know that started um, in 2012. Um, so if you could just tell us a little bit about that and and what you're, you know, how that started and what you're doing with that. Yeah, uh, I was I was one year out of my MFA program, um, and I didn't actually. This is a trend in my life. Uh, but I didn't actually really start learning anything until about the last six months. I was just confused and angry. <laughs> um, and what had happened was that like a lot of my peers in that program, a lot of kids I knew from the writing scene, you know, they were getting stuff published. They were getting picked up um, by agents, you know, they were having these successes and I wasn't having any success. And so me and a friend of mine uh, were taking a walk on the train tracks down, um, by the, the ship locks in Ballard. And, and we were both bitching about how we hadn't had any success. And we were like, well, let, let's fuck them. Let's make our own nice thing. Right. Like they, they get nice things. Why don't we get nice things? So we decided to make our own nice thing. And that turned out to be uh, Pacifica. And, and you guys publish poetry and, and fiction and all sorts of stuff. And it's you just, you take uh subscription or not subscriptions. You, you take subscriptions, but you take uh, entries or submissions um, from, from anywhere. And, uh, you've, how many issues have you had now? I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, that's uh, six years ago now that you started it. So you must be chugging along. Yeah, I think we're up to about 13 issues or so. Um, we take poetry, fiction, creative, non art and photography, uh, all year round. You can hit us up on submittable 
right? If you got a submittable account, we take all our submissions through there. They are free of charge. All right. Well, there you go. Um, what's the, uh, what, what do you have coming up in the future, man? And, uh, like, are you, are you working on anything, uh, that you're planning on publishing, you know, is, uh, what's going on with the Pacifica literary review review? Um, you know, just tell us generally what you got going on in the future here. Uh, currently I'm trying to pull a manuscript together, um, because it's about time and I feel like I have, I've sort of settled into what my style or my voice is going to be. Um, for the, before, you know, the last five years or so, I've done a lot of, uh, flailing around trying to find what that looks like. And I think I've sort of settled into it. So now that it's there, um, I think I'm going to try and pull everything together, get together, uh, get a book out, um, or at least get a book together and send it out. And we'll, we'll take it from there after that. Cool. When, when do you, um, when are you planning on having something Do Are you just kind of keeping yourself flexible right now? Not, not setting deadlines or anything. Uh, I'm shooting for at least 30 poems. Well, I have about 30 right now, um, that I think are solid, but probably about 10 of, or only 10 of them feel done. Right. So I have at least 20 that I'm continually sort of going back to and pushing in different directions or playing with. Um, things like that. And I'm aiming to have those sort of formed up by like September or so. Um, and once we get there, then I think I'm going to take a look and see where the thematic compass has led me um, and try to fill the gaps then. All right. Well, I will, I will be looking for that and I'm sure all my listeners will be as well. Um, I have one more question for you really quick and then I'll ask you what you want to whine about, but I'm just curious, what are you reading right now? Are are you reading anything? Yes. Right now I'm reading, uh, Phil Levine. I'm going through sort of, uh, the collected, collected works of Phil Levine, Detroit poet. Um, excellent, excellent poet. Um, I'm working through, they feed, they lion and the names of the lost, uh, and what work is right now. Okay. And actually now that you brought uh, him up, uh, actually who is your favorite poet? Like who do you, who's your biggest influence? Ooh, ooh, that's tough. Uh, I like C.P. Cavafy. C.P. Cavafy. Cavafy. Yeah. C-A-V-A-F-Y. Okay. Um, and he was a he's a Greek dude writing around 1900 to about 1925, I think, or like 18 1890 to about 1925. Um, living in Alexandria in Egypt. And so he, he exists in this weird place in history between sort of like um, the, the Greek independence from the Ottoman Empire. He was an ethnic Greek. He was sort of culturally Greek, I guess I should say. And he identifies very strongly with like the Hellenistic influences in that, in the Mediterranean. Um, but he sort of exists in that place between like overlapping with the Greek independence um, and World War One and sort of the uh, partition of the Middle East and, and all these very strange sort of transitive moments um, in the history of that part of the world. And he's he has a, a capacity for uh, for love that is just that just blows me away. Um, just sort of some beautiful, beautiful tenderness in that dude. 
All right. Well, uh, the, the name of the show is uh, American Winer. So, uh, Matt Muth, what do you want to whine about? Oh, this this was difficult for me. Like, I thought about this a lot. Um, and I noted that uh, some of your guests have talked about politics. Mm-hmm. So I figured that was a good place to start, but I would like to whine about politics. That um, sounds good, man. That's I, I always, I've been saying for like the past couple of shows, it's people, the topics tend to be the three T's it's travel, Trump and Twitter. So it's, it's one of the, you know, <laughs> travel politics or social media. It's, it has some aspect of those. So fire away, man. I, okay. So uh, I mentioned before earlier that I worked in Congress for a little bit when I was living in DC, right? It was, a, it, it was a good experience, ultimately not for me, um, but my job was, I was an assistant to the LA who basically handled all of our constituent correspondence, right? Okay. Now, I tell you that right? in regard to my teaching, these 19-year-old kids raised by the internet, there's a very distinct like malaise that exists, right? Where they're like, oh, politicians are all the same, or like oh, both parties are corrupt or like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the, whole, the, the corporations, man, they own the government and like the, the pharmaceutical companies are like uh, turning the frogs gay, bro, and all this other, <laughs> like just, just very sort of nihilistic uh, attitudes among these kids. Now, based on my time in Congress, right, what I can tell you is that your average representative and all the representatives that I met by and large, want what is best for the country. Nobody runs for Congress to be rich and powerful because the pay sucks. All you do is get yelled at all day by people, by your constituents, by lobbyists. Uh, and they're probably all rich if they're running for Congress, right? The vast majority of these individuals, and I should preface this by saying this was before the Tea Party. I worked during the Obama administration wow. uh, the first term and this was right on the cusp of the Tea Party wave coming in. So things may be very different now. Um, but like I, I, the specific example that stands out to me is that um, we were working on the when the bailout was being pushed through Congress, when TARP, when the American Recovery Act uh, was being legislated, we were dumped on, right? Our office was dumped on. And I was working for Fred Upton. Uh, who's a representative out of Michigan's 6th District, which includes Kalamazoo, uh, Berrien Springs, like the west side of the state right against the lake and the Indiana border. Okay. And all, and it was part of my job to, like, you know, read and respond to these constituent calls and the, the emails and all this other stuff and the faxes, because people still fax shit to Congress. Um, and the vast majority of the things we got, the calls we got, were people saying, like, how dare you spend government money? This won't affect me, and, and so on and so forth, right? And our, our candidates or our congressman, our boss, Fred, like, would read these, and he would go, how can people be this stupid, mm -hmm. right? Like, how can you literally not understand that the bank that holds your mortgage going underwater is going to affect you? Right? He literally said it is a failure of education. And I agree with him. The reason, partially, our politics are all fucked up is because we are, your representatives are responding to their constituents. Your constituents are morons. <laughs> and morons are people whose education has failed fundamentally. Mm -hmm. right? Nobody is born stupid. But the for whatever reason, 
education has failed with these specific individuals and they make themselves very loud. Right. Oh yeah. Um, that's, the, that's the other thing for those of you who are out there like writing letters, calling your Congress people keep doing that because it works. They pay attention to that shit. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it, it's really interesting that you, that was the era that you went in. It must've been fascinating to be part of that because I mean, that was the, the last time that, that a situation like that happened was the great depression you know, to see uh, to see them ha- have to deal with that, and to see the response that people uh, that people had to that to that whole, you know, where they're like, "Oh, the, the, they bailed out the auto industry. Why why didn't they just let it fail?" You know, I've been working in the auto industry for five years now. If they hadn't have bailed it out, I wouldn't have a job. I never would have gotten a job. You know, I wouldn't have one now, and I wouldn't have one back in 2013 when I started. Um, so, but I wanted to ask. You said it's a failure of education. Do you think that that uh, seeing that they're being uh, through that experience kind of uh, pushed you towards being a teacher because you wanted to try and be part of the solution. Yeah. In some ways I do view what I do as like a civic good, a civic necessity um, that hopefully like I can push kids off this, like everybody's corrupt and all politicians are the same ideas they have and get them to care about nuance, about specificity. It, what they seem to have now is a, uh, a hard-boiled refusal to examine things that are difficult. And that's what your job is as an educator, is to give people tools to examine difficult things. Okay. Um, um, so, we, ha- we're, uh, we're, we have about uh, four minutes left here. I was just, could you give me a specific example of like one of those tools or you know, just some sort of specific example as to what you were just talking about? Yes. Um, one thing that... I think is critically, critically underutilized and undertaught right now. Everywhere from like elementary school up to university level education is media literacy, Mm -hmm. right? No one to my knowledge is teaching integrated coursework on how to navigate a world where everyone is shouting constantly, how to find good sources of information and how to critically analyze sources of information from the context that they're in. Right. It's like people are, if if you pretend the internet is like just a big box store or something like that, we're taking the pictures off everything, just cardboard boxes. Right. And expecting people to go in and come out with the right item, Mm -hmm. um, the right piece of information to form a, a civic opinion, right. Or the right piece of information to assess, assess the effects of a policy or the merits of, a piece of legislation, but like they, they don't know where to go or what, even what the box looks like. You're just like, it's in a box, go get it. And then they come out with the wrong thing and you get mad at them. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it, you know, and we always end up, you know, kind of proposing a solution, uh, you know, at the, cause people, like I said, a lot of people have the same kind of problems, you know, with, with society right now. And, and um, it's just, it does seem like being more informed is the, is the answer. Uh, you know, and, and you you can't, there's no silver bullet for that. That's a gradual process that has to happen. And um, there are people that are vested in people in uh, the general public not being uh, informed. So you're fighting against that as well. Um, but, uh, but Matt, thanks so much for being on, man. We got to, we got to wrap up here. I just got the two minute notice. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's been great to talk to you. And um, I'd like to have you on again if we, if we have a relevant topic that I think you would be good for. Um, so thanks a lot, man. That'd be great, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Uh, Detroit podcast network, Alex Berg. Thank you.
Thank you, man. Uh, yes, this is American American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. I will be back next Wednesday.